Welcome, this is Coppercast, a show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical, world of institutional investment and crypto assets. I'm your host, Tyler Kenyon, and if you've ever attended a BlockWorks event, my guest today needs no introduction. In addition to organizing some of the best events in the space, Jason and his team at BlockWorks also pride themselves on delivering some of the best content to both help retail and institutional investors alike to understand the crypto landscape. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me. So BlockWorks has had a similar sort of growth trajectory as, as Copper, our own company, and we, we sort of started around the same time, but I don't know the BlockWorks backstory, so tell me where it all started for you guys. Yeah, so my co-founder Mike and I uh, co-founded BlockWorks in May of 2018. We're coming up on four years here. There's one underlying thesis of the entire company, which is that crypto will eventually become one of the largest asset classes in the world. And, you know, in your position at Copper, I'm assuming you probably agree with some semblance of that thesis. Uh, and the second order impact of that thesis is that crypto, that the number of investors who come into the ecosystem and who start allocating to this asset class will grow a thousand fold or 10,000 fold, right? And so for us, you know, you guys approach it from an infrastructure building lens, right? Custody and trading, we approach it from an information lens. And we said that as the number of investors who came into crypto grew a thousand fold, these investors were going to need a better source of news and information and data and analysis and research and insights. And so that's what we've built. And so BlockWorks over the last couple of years has built uh, some of the largest conferences in the industry, uh, the largest podcast net network in the industry, one of the fastest growing newsletters in the industry. We have an amazing journalism and editorial team, and we have some fun stuff that we're launching uh, in the next couple of months that are aligned with this research and data and, and news and, and analysis mission of ours. So that's a little bit of the backstory. So part of that is heavily focused on investors and what they need in the space. So why, why did you choose to go down the path of you know, an institutional investor-focused you know, event, information, editorial company, instead of, you know, crypto writ large and retail? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it kind of stems from our background. So I used to work at a venture capital firm before this. And my experience in 2017 of trying to get the GPs and the LPs of, of our firm to actually allocate to crypto, uh, whether it be in the private markets or just buying Bitcoin was incredibly frustrating. I would send them uh, links to Reddit and links to Twitter. And I actually remember sending them a YouTube of this guy, Crypto Bobby, and they laughed me out of the room because uh, they said that they were not going to allocate to an asset class because of some random guy named Crypto Panda, Crypto Whale, and Crypto Bobby <laughs> on the internet. And so that became the, the big pain point. And so, yeah, BlockWorks focused for the first couple of years entirely on this institutional, uh, on this institutional audience. Our thesis has changed a little bit, though, um, which I, I, you know, I'd be curious to get your take on at some point as well. The, the definition of an investor is changing. The definition of invest, an investor, um, we, we kind of say it, look, it used to look pretty stale, pale, and male, right? Mm -hmm. It was kind of this like hedge fund manager, financial advisor. We think that what crypto has done, because it's been a very bottoms-up industry driven by retail for the first 10 years, is that the definition of an, inv an investor looks very different. So yes, we, we focused on the institutional uh, allocator for the first couple of years of the business and that built a really good brand but now we're starting to rethink what an investor looks like in crypto and, and build products for that market as well i suppose it's not even just the definition of an investor is changing it's the definition of an investment itself is changing right like for, for, for as long as i've been in this space people have said the howey test is out of date and needs to be updated and i suppose that's probably reflected in, in crypto and, and who your users are now and who your you know, sponsors are as well. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Like I, 
Every, my thesis, and it's not even a company thesis, it's my, my thesis is that everything gets financialized. Everything ultimately gets financialized. And what happens when different products get financialized is that there, it opens up different baskets of people who were never investors before. So let's take sneakers, right? What, what financializing sneakers did with different marketplaces for sneakers is, and the ability to invest in sneakers, uh, is that now you have a bunch of maybe sneakerheads who had never bought a stock bond currency or commodity in their entire life, and now they're allocating to sneakers. Whether or not they realize it or not, that's an investment in sneakers. And so our thesis is that all asset classes, whether it's art or sneakers or, or, or fine wine, whatever it might be, those will all get uh, really just like fractionalized into, and, and turn into, and markets will get created around them. Are you a sneaker man? I'm not a sneaker man. You got some actually, fresh kicks I, on. I, I just got some new kicks. So, uh, yeah, no, I appreciate you looking out for those. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. So some of the events that you guys host, um, Digital Assets Summit, uh, one of the longest standing sort of institutional events in the space. You've got Permissionless coming up in May, which is going to be enormous. But I'm kind of curious if you cast your mind back to the first crypto like event you guys hosted. What's changed since then? Um, just like, is it the quality of the speakers? Is it the quality of the participants and the attendees? Mm. Is it the venues you're at? What's, what's sort of been the evolution of events in your space? Every, everything has changed. So Blockworks, when we first started hosting events, we would host 6 to 10 p.m. happy hours, right? Where we had like seven people show up. Uh, in one month, we're hosting a 7,000-person event that's multi-day conference, and the CEO of Robinhood is speaking, and, and Blau is headlining the festival on the last night. So ev everything has really changed. But I think everything in our business stems from the audience, uh, the audience and the content. So just approaching it from those two lenses, like from the content, you remember, 2018, 2019, those are those are some dark days, it's right? Crypto winter. So the crypto is the heart of crypto winter in 2019. And our first conference that you guys supported, I think you guys had less than 10 employees yeah. and we were just hustling to try to get you to sign. You were haggling hard with us. Yeah. And it was probably like a $10,000 deal, like a mini, mini deal or something. It was, but it was an important deal for us. <laughs> very important for both sides. Yeah. And it was May of 2019. And if you think back to what was interesting in May of 2019, it was like, it was these like boring, I'm sorry, I, I know this is almost your business, so I don't want to rag on it, but like <laughs> it was the, the infrastructure stuff that yeah. was just so necessary. Yeah. Um, so, so, so necessary for the industry, but like, isn't that sexy and isn't actually, like custody is not actually that interesting. It's so necessary and it's underlying the, it's, it's so foundational to the entire industry, but like, it's not that interesting. And that was the interesting thing back then. Well, it underpins the institutional side of things, but because like crypto was so retail driven until that point and you know a retail investor didn't know what custody meant in i guess financial services terms at least so it was it was that education piece that had to happen and education's always a bit hard right unless there's some amazing narrative to go along with explaining what multi-party computation and key sharding is then it's going to be a bit of an uphill battle and it i mean that's what we found at least for for the first four years but when you guys are like uh curating content I mean, how do, you, how do you go about, you know, choosing topics or themes? Is it purely a reflection of what you hear people talking about on, on YouTube and Twitter? Or, I mean, do you have, not, not an agenda in a bad sense, but do you have something that you want people to be discussing because it's important for improving the industry? Uh, no, actually. I, so we don't take any sort, we don't have any sort of agenda. We don't have any sort of, let's push people into this type of content. 
Um, and I think that's one reason we've done really well. Um, is like when you look at a lot of the large conferences and podcasts in the industry or, or even other media companies, there's usually an agenda. And, and I'll, I'll call out some people, but I, but I love these companies and I love these brands, like the Bitcoin conference. That is a Bitcoin only conference. Like you're not going there to talk about other asset classes. If you look at Bankless, like Ryan and David absolutely love them. We've partnered with them for permissionless. That is an Ethereum focused show. And one reason I think that we've done really, really well is we haven't taken any sort of stance on that. I will give a huge hats off to my co-founder, Mike, who he runs all of the editorial and content at BlockWorks. We don't focus on what is happening right now, unlike a lot of other people. We try to look six months in the future. So I remember Mike sat me down in 2018 and he said, our content needs to go towards prime brokerage. I was like, ah, everyone's talking about custody. He goes, yeah, but next year they're going to be talking about prime brokerage. And sure enough, the prime brokerage, the race to build a PB in crypto kind of kicked off. And then a year later in 2019, he goes, it's all about derivatives and certain uh, kind of secondary assets on top of these other assets. And I was like, yeah, everyone's talking about PB though. And he goes, no, it's all about derivatives now. And in 2020, he said, look, DeFi is at the beginning of the year. DeFi is going to be the thing. Sure enough, DeFi summer. And so I think we try to look six months ahead when we look at our content. Well, the natural question then is, is what is this? <laughs> what, what's ahead. coming up next? I was, you know, I was really frustrated <laughs> with myself that I brought that up because Mike is the, the big brains of the two. And yeah. I wish I had him sitting next to me. I think um, for us, we, what we look at, like if I had to look at a couple of different things that are happening in the industry. First is when you when you look six months ago, uh, six months or 12 months ago, the, there was a big question of like, will we live in a multi-chain future or not? And now I'm I think I can say with pretty certain confidence that it's, it's clear we will live in a multi-chain future. And so then you have to look at the second order implications of that. Okay, bridges, right? Bridges connect different L1s together. Well, what's like, when you look at the different hacks in the space with Ronin Bridge and Wormhole, those are all bridging, uh, like a failure of bridging technology. So then you have to think, okay, well, what happens? Is, it, is, is bridging the final solution or is it different things that are almost uh, enable composability and like in, interchain uh, like IBC and stuff like that, or things like layer zero. So that's one area that we're really looking at. The other area that we're looking at is, um, if you remember DeFi summer in, in summer of 2020, that really kicked off a massive bull run in DeFi. But then when you look ahead to 20, uh, 2021, the narrative flipped to gaming, uh, NFTs, and then at the back half of 2021, uh, the metaverse. The When attention gets sucked out of a specific niche within crypto, uh, the asset class inherently falls. So that's what's driven the price of things like Uniswap and Compound and Ave and things like that down. I'm incredibly excited about just like what the next wave of DeFi looks like. And I feel like a lot that's where a lot of the big innovation is actually happening is cross-chain DeFi, um, which unlocks a massive amount of value. What are the kind of milestones do you guys look out for then if it's not like protocol related, but you know, for our industry, is it something like an ETF or you know, an IPO, like Coinbase's IPO, what other kind of milestones do you guys see as not propping up the industry, but like supporting the industry and providing that base layer for it to move to the next level? Mm. I think it's, I think you have to ask yourself, like what area of the marketplace are you looking at? So institutions who you guys deal with need a very different thing, like the level of not just custody that they need, but then they're going to ask questions around insurance, right? If I'm a retail investor, like I don't, think about things like insurance. And so you kind of have to look at it in two, two different sides. For me, I actually look at it, uh, approach that from a very anecdotal and like qualitative lens. So I look at things like um, almost who's subscribing to our newsletter and I, you know who's listening to our podcast. So we have a, a, a lot of 
data on just like who's consuming this content. And I remember a week before JP Morgan announced, had a big Bitcoin announcement, 127 people from JP Morgan signed up for our newsletter. So you can almost tell that these kind of things are coming. Um, but I think actually you would, you would probably have a better sense of like what we need and, and what doesn't exist. But insurance feels like a big one, but um, I don't know. But I'm keeping a close eye on permissioned DeFi, mm -hmm. which on one hand is like not really DeFi that much, but a lot of the funds that we speak with are really excited about permission DeFi, so I'm, so I'm interested in that. Yeah, and I guess it's the regulatory landscape that surrounds all of it, which, right. you know, will push things forward or completely shut them down. Right. Or push them out, out into the fringes where institutions can't participate in it and it just becomes a retail thing uh, for it to live or die on, yeah. on that hill. I don't know. Um, talk to me about Miami. What's happened in Miami that's made it such an appealing place? Because permissionless in May is in Miami, right? Or we're in Palm we're Beach. In Palm Beach. We're yeah. in Palm Beach, but it's kind it's of an, an hour, thing, yeah, an hour north. Um, oh man, uh, how libertarian do I go here? No, I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. So I mean, Francis Suarez had the had the famous tweet. You know, I think it was, "How can I help?" Right? And what Francis Suarez, the mayor of Miami, has done that's so brilliant is he's run that city like a startup, right? So he's cold DM'd me. On Twitter, I've never met the guy. Is DMing me on Twitter, saying, "Hey, you should move your your company. You should move Blockworks to Miami." Here, like he's he's out here trying to get a customer, you know. And there are no other government, like politicians, mayors, who run their city or their state or their country like a startup. And and that's what really kicked it off. I think the second thing that happened is COVID. And there are a lot of folks in crypto who are inherently a little bit like libertarian and kind of like leave me alone. And uh, Florida had the kind of the least strict. Uh, regulations, but then I think the third thing and the most important thing is uh, why did everyone go to Silicon Valley in the 90s and the early 2000s? One one reason and one reason only: energy. You can say it's the money, you can say it's the developers, the talent. It's none of those things. It's the energy that just like comes out of a place when everyone is building and excited about things. And there's just a sheer there's an there's an amount of optimism I think in Miami right now that doesn't exist other places in the country. Do you think it's going to permeate from there and hopefully up north towards Washington, D.C.? Like, how, how closely do you think the industry's working with politicians and legislatures, I guess around the world, in effectively creating policy right now? I think it's – I think we're – I think everyone's trying their hardest. So if you look at someone like FTX, they spent over a billion dollars acquiring uh, licenses last year. I think it was $1.1 billion dollars just acquiring licenses in 2021. That's a ridiculous number. Um, I, I can't give a very definitive answer here because when I look at something like copper, do you guys want clear regulations? Uh, like, of course you do. Are you guys working with the regulators? I'm sure 100% you are. How willing are they to talk? I don't, I don't know. Um, but I think the the clearest thing that I think regulators are waking up to is that crypto is now too big to fail. And crypto, you can't put crypto back in the bottle. In 2017, if they wanted to shut down crypto, they could have shut down crypto. But you can't shut it down now. You would absolutely ruin millions of retail investors around the world. I'd love to see the subscriber database at, at Blockworks with the .sec.gov email addresses or CFTC. We definitely have, yeah. Else. We've definitely seen an influx of those. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, do you get a sense that DeFi is going to be good or bad for that sort of move towards better regulation because of what it is? Um, it's neither good nor bad. I, I just, I have the belief that once amazing technology is out of the bottle, it's really tough to, to kind of cap the lid. 
Uh, and it's really just about like do how do DeFi is not going away. DeFi is the future of finance. It's just how much do local regulators, when I say local, I might say like uh, the U.S. versus the U.K., right? If the U.S. doesn't want DeFi to permeate from inside the U.S., that's that. I mean, that sucks for folks in the U.S., but that's then the builders are just going to go to London, right? And if folks in the U.K. don't want it, okay, great. They'll all just move to, to Asia. It's you can you can almost look at what happened with Bitcoin mining as an example. Bitcoin mining didn't stop. There was like a 30 or 40% dip in the market, but it's already right back to where it was. It, miners just left China and took their mines to places like Kazakhstan and Texas. So it, you can't stop innovation once it's out of the bottle. In your show and tell segment that you did with us, we, you looked a little bit at the, the growth of crypto users mirroring the growth of internet adoption historically. Um, and then we were looking at some of the macro conditions that might force the, the crypto users into a breakaway and start accelerating beyond what the internet adoption was previously. And one of those big drivers for you was ETH merge. Um, tell me a little bit more about why you believe so ardently that you know ETH merge and ETH Ethereum itself will be that sort of reserve asset of financial services system 2.0. Yeah, I mean, it's becoming abundantly clear that uh, the future of finance will get built on crypto rails and that Ethereum will be the reserve asset of that ecosystem. The ETH merge is the greatest catalyst for Ethereum that we've ever seen, right? Since Ethereum was launched in 2015, the Ethereum merge is the greatest catalyst. And that's really for three reasons. The first is that it transitions uh, Ethereum from a uh, inflationary supply schedule into a deflationary. It's actually really micro-inflationary, but when you take into account the burn, then it becomes deflationary. Uh, the second is that it moves from uh, proof of work to proof of stake. And if you look at probably a lot of your clients, one of their big mandates is ESG investing. It becomes really tough to invest in an asset like Bitcoin. Uh, when you look at like the energy of proof of work, not that I agree with that, but that's kind of like that's that's their take on it. And then the third is that it uh, turns it into with staking, it turns it into a, a yield generating asset. And if you're a uh, if you're an institution and you're looking at this, you see, OK, we want to invest at the forefront of innovation. That's Ethereum. We want to invest in assets that spit off yield. That's Ethereum. We want to invest in assets that are good for the environment or, or don't harm the environment. Great. That's Ethereum. And we want to invest in assets that don't have like this inflationary schedule, like maybe the dollar and everyone's worried about inflation. And, and that's Ethereum as well. So, yeah, I'm really, really excited about what happens with Ethereum. Now, take into account that uh, the Fed might decelerate their tightening around the same time that the merge happens. And, uh, yeah, it makes me pretty excited. Are there other projects at the moment or innovations that they get you as excited as, as ETH or, you know, what's on your radar? Um, no, I think just the, uh, I think a lot, like the, the most innovative stuff that I see in my inbox for companies that are raising right now are, are really innovative DeFi applications that are fully cross-chain. Um, I'm really excited about what happens when you don't have these like, these different layer ones with their different communities who don't really talk to each other. Um, mm. I think it does something amazing for just unlocking capital, but I think it does something amazing for unlocking community. Uh, and, and Terra and Doquan are really leading the way here. What they've done with you know, acquiring something like uh, Avalanche, right, for their, as a, reserve, as a reserve asset is brilliant, not just because of what it does for the reserves, but because now folks in Avalanche are inherently now aligned with the Terra ecosystem. And I think there's going to be a lot more of that when these uh, technological barriers get broken down between the L1s. I guess at the same time as, as those technological barriers are getting broken down, I mean, we keep seeing hacks and, and things like that happening in the space. 
do you think that reflects sort of like an immaturity of, of DeFi as a technology or an immaturity of DeFi as people who are participating in it? Like, where, where do you, what impact do you see these like hacks having? Is it just teething pains? I just read the, this um, great biography on Andrew Carnegie and uh, the, in the Gilded Age, like right after, the, right after the Civil War in like the 1870s, we were just laying a massive amount of railroad track in the United States. And train, one problem is trains sometimes, when, so they tried to speed up the trains. They used to go like three miles per hour, then it was like seven miles per hour, then 15 miles per hour. And that was like, oh my God, this train's going so fast. And the, they had some issues where the trains would actually start falling off the tracks. Were, are trains bad? No. Are, the tr are tracks a bad technology? No. They just went too quickly mm. in building out an industry. And the, in the, the innovation in like connecting trains to the tracks eventually caught up with where we needed to go. Um, but it didn't mean either of those technologies were a bad thing. And that's what's happening right now with cryptos. The innovation is just kind of run away from where the, where, what the infrastructure can support. But ultimately, that will catch up. That's a nice analogy. I like that. I'm gonna try to try it. <laughs> Mike said I I'm a, I'm a huge history nerd. Mike said I need to uh, make more history analogies. So okay, cool. How do you guys? How did you meet Mike anyway? Mike was a college buddy. I've known Mike since we were both 18 years old, and we both went to Emory down in Atlanta. I'm from California. He's from Boston, and we just became close friends. So by the time we had, and we actually were were roommates uh, in in New York when we moved to the city. And by the time we had launched Blockworks, we had known each other for you know, about six years. Who had to convince who that Blockworks was? the enterprise you should start? I, uh, my, I, I convinced Mike. Um, he, I, I wanted to launch a consulting firm, actually. Um, I wanted to launch a consulting firm to help companies like build with Ethereum and get into Ethereum. This is back in 2017 when the enterprise blockchain narrative was still kind of rampant, which obviously wasn't really a thing. Uh, I came back into the apartment one day and said, we, I'm going to launch a, a consulting for, for Ethereum. And Mike said, great, I'm in, because he was actually a consultant at the time. And he woke up the next day and said, that's a horrible idea. Why don't we, uh, nobody's going to trust us. We're like 23 years old. Why, nobody's going to trust us to buy our consulting services. Why don't we host events to actually build trust in the community? Then we'll sell them consulting. And here we are four years later. We <laughs> have no interest to go in going into consulting, but we sure do host events. So, I mean, both of you have very entrepreneurial spirits then. It's been really fascinating listening about your journey and seeing your vision for where things are going as well. Um, before we let you go, though, there's about 10 questions we ask everyone. 10, all right, rapid so fire 10, yeah. I always say it's rapid fire, and then it ends up taking <laughs> like 20 minutes. But anyway, okay. Yeah, let's do it. So, where do you see crypto industry one year versus 10 years? Um, one year from now, I see just more innovation, more capital. The biggest difference between... So we're, we're obviously, I don't, know, I don't know if I want to call it a bear market, but a little bit of a crypto winter right now. The biggest difference between now and 2017, or excuse me, 2018, is the amount of permanent capital. So when you think back to 2017, the ICOs really just rotated ETH into some like crap token, and then that all sold off because people needed US dollars to, to pay for things at building a company. Today you have, you know, I think you had $32 billion of venture capital flow into the industry last year alone. Um, and so the biggest difference is just permanent capital. So I expect in the next 12 months, just more building and more innovation and more exciting companies. 10 years from now, uh, crypto will become uh, by 20, let's say by 20, what is it, 2022 right now, by 2032, uh, crypto will be pretty close to flipping the stock market in terms of size. Uh, Web3 applications will definitely be larger than some of these Web2 applications. Um, and I think we'll be very close to just crypto becoming the largest asset class in the entire world. If you could change one thing about the industry, what would you change? Um, I think I would change the 
fighting between communities. Um, we are so, we have such a hard struggle. We, I don't think people understand just how tough it's going to be. Um, when you start breaking things like breaking, overtaking the stock market, there are a lot of people in power who don't want that to happen. And a lot of the institutional systems are set up uh, so that that works well. When you come at the throats of the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ and, and ultimately other systems like Twitter and Facebook and things like that, that the, the system doesn't want that to break. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I think that we as an industry need to get better at working together between communities instead of fighting with other communities. It's a, it's a common sentiment, I think, I hear amongst our guests who are building stuff. You know, for anyone who's building something, that infighting doesn't really help anyone, right? There's no rising tide there. Yeah, so, and right. if you think about why people, people don't actually care about most communities. They care, why, does, why is someone an avalanche maxi? Well, probably because like 90% of their portfolios <laughs> in avalanche. You know, this is, this is not like a mission or a vision of this one person. It's, you just look at their portfolio. <laughs> so. fair, fair cop. Um, is there a piece of technology in your life that you can't live without? Um, yeah, is it a cop out to say my phone? Nope. I mean, <laughs> my cool. phone I mean, my AirPods. We live on our phones these yeah. days, but AirPods is good. Okay, what does your weekend look like? Aside from today being Sunday and you being here with us, what, when you get time off, what are you doing? Yeah, you, you dragged me in. Um, I go to the park a lot. Um, I live near a park. I was at the park right before this. Um, I usually, most weekends, I take Saturday off and I work on Sundays. So, and I cook a lot. I cook a lot. Yeah. What kind of cuisine? What's your, what's your go-to? Uh, I make a lot of seafood, like <laughs> clams or mussels. or um, I make a lot of steak. There's a butcher nearby uh, where I live in Brooklyn. So yeah, I just got a grill and yeah, I've been making a lot of steak. So were you tempted by the Miami offer? I was tempted. I was tempted. We're going to stay here though. We just got a, uh, a nice new lease in Manhattan that I'm very excited about. Cool. Are there any movies that you can watch over and over again and never get tired of? No. Not a movie person. Not a movie person. Yeah. Any, Not a movie person. Any books you could read and reread? <laughs> um, yeah, I. this is the lamest answer possible. People are like, he doesn't like movies and he's going to say the lamest response for books. But I can read any like good bi history biography. Um, I just read a good one about Ulysses S. Grant and just read a Lincoln one. I read the Carnegie one. just read a, one on Rockefeller. I'm a bit, on, a, on a big like a 1850s Gilded Age Civil War stint right now with reading. Okay. This is probably part of the podcast where people turn it off. So. <laughs> no one's going to be meeting you at the bar for a drink. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Between crypto and talking history, no one wants to talk to me. Are there any catchphrases or mottos that you live by? I think just that you live to see another day. And man, we've had some really, really crappy days at Blockworks and feeling like all, all hell is breaking loose. And even that the maybe... Yeah, just some, some really crappy days and, and even moments, and uh, sometimes that extended out to weeks, but just if you keep fighting, you live to see another day. Is there anyone we should all follow on Twitter? Yeah, of course, at Jason Yanowitz. No, um, <laughs> this shameless self-plug. Shameless, shameless shell. No, I don't know. I think um, this is probably, like most people really like this follow, but Kobe, mm -hmm. I think, brings a really well-respected, well-rounded, um, you know, he's been in crypto since 2013, and he just has a... Uh, he's an optimist, but also has sometimes a pessimistic or a well-rounded take on crypto instead of just being overly hyped on everything. What was the last thing that surprised you? We launched NFTs recently. Um, 
instead of, so we have a large conference coming up. It's a 7,000 person conference called Permissionless, uh, May 17th through 19th in, in Palm Beach. We, instead of launching VIP tickets on like an Eventbrite or Universe or whatever, Ticketmaster, we launched 555 NFTs as our VIP ticket. And the mint price for these uh, VIP tickets, this NFT called Permies, was one ETH. So at the time it was about $3,300. They sold out pretty instantly. And within 48 hours of selling out, the price of the Permies had shot up to seven ETH. So I think one thing that surprised me that, so yeah, what is that? That's like $25,000 for, for one VIP ticket to our conference. And I think one thing that made me realize is like companies constantly undervalue their products. Um, co companies are constantly scared to ask for as much money as they should get. And I think when you just let things flow into the open market, you, you, a lot of companies would be uh, pretty surprised at just what their loyal fans and, and audience and customers are really willing to pay for their products. Does that mean next year VIP tickets start at 70? 50, 50K, baby. <laughs> <laughs> no, we will, um, we're going to let the market decide. So, and I think you'll see that more and more with, with different BlockWorks products. Cool. Who's the next guest we should have on our show? I would bring on someone to talk about music NFTs. Oh, no, is this an institutional uh, finance? It is, but I mean, yeah. that could very quickly I become institutional. On, I would bring on Justin Blau. I would bring on a DJ. Um, Blau, he, uh, at one point in time, had the record for the largest NFT sale in history, which was a music NFT sale, I think 11 or 12 or $13 million in early 2021. He is... Uh, really reshaping what the music industry looks like right now. And a lot, if you actually talk to a lot of artists, Spotify and Apple and, and YouTube, they're just, the, the music industry isn't set up for many artists to succeed. And the ones that we like, it's like the top 0.001%, but the rest of musicians get screwed. Um, and I would bring on Blau to talk about uh, music NFTs. I would enjoy that conversation. Last question. If you somehow managed to meet Satoshi, but you only got to ask him or her one question, what do you want to know? How did you dampen your ego so much so that you were comfortable giving up the fame for the rest of your life and almost sacrificing your ego in order to build an industry from scratch? That's a good question. I like that. All right, Jason, that's it, man. You survived. You made All right, it. I you, made it. You get your cookie. Now. I get my cookie, yes. <laughs> okay. Amazing. My LaCroix and a cookie. Thank good you. Night. Thank you very much for coming, man. <laughs> Thank it's you for good. having me. It's been a joy. To our listeners, if you haven't already seen Jason's show and tell video, please go to our YouTube page or you can find it on Twitter at CopperHQ or find it on the website, copper.co forward slash insights. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, which includes links to all the week's top stories as well as any updates from the wider team here at Copper. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure to give us a good review on whichever streaming platform you're using. And if you want to get in touch, you can always reach me, Tyler, on Twitter at CryptoTSK, or you can email me directly, tyler.kenyon at copper.co. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you know someone who should be, give us a shout. We're here to talk all things institutional crypto. And of course, this show is only made possible because of the technical and creative wizardry of Tally Spear, with support from Melee Mountford, Eva Leela, and Kate Light. That's it for today. Stay safe. Stay safe.